2: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man.
0: The gospel never tells us something to do. The gospel tells us about something that's been done.
2: Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we have Jasmine Holmes with us for the second time. Um, to talk about her, it's not brand new, but newer book, Carved in Ebony, Lessons from the Black Women Who Shape Us. And I'm sure almost all of our audience is familiar with you, Jasmine, but maybe you could just share a little bit about yourself and, and why you wrote this book.
0: Uh, um, I am... A mom of three boys. I'm married to Philip. Um, We've been married for eight years. Our oldest is six, and our youngest is about to be 10 months old. He was born a month before um, the book released, which was kind of a, kind of a whirlwind. um, not a month before, but he was born, he was supposed to be born a month before he was born two months before. And so it's kind of been an interesting, um, experience of all of the marketing stuff had to be pushed back because I had a baby four weeks early. Um, so this has been like a really long launch for cards Ebony, which is great. Cause that means I just get to talk about it for a longer time. Um, The reason why I wrote the book is because I've always loved history and I've always loved sharing stories. And when I wrote my first book, Mother to Son, um, I had a chapter about representation and why representation matters in history and why it matters in Christian history. And I had a paragraph where I mentioned some names of some black believers um, across history who I had never heard about but wanted to learn more about and wanted my son to know about. And it was one of the most popular parts of the book. People kept asking me like, okay, where can I find out more about these people? How can I, you know, how can I learn more? And um, I didn't really have a nice, neat and tidy answer for them because so much of these resources are spread across all kinds of like scholarly texts and primary sources. And you really have to dig. And I thought, man, it'd be really exciting to dig. And so I wrote up a proposal um, so that I could be the one to do the digging.
1: That's great. And I really wanted to say, I loved Mother to Son. I loved Carton Ebony. Um, you know, as, as most of our listeners know, I, I love history. And so the history and the stories and, and hearing how it fits together, it, it was just very fascinating. I'm very glad you wrote the book. And I know exactly what you mean about that, that it's to study something and be the one to research it. Um, it's just it's a lot of joy in, in diving in deep for something like that. Uh, so thank you for writing the book, and I was—I uh, uh, encourage our listeners to read it and learn about uh, people that they likely have not heard of. So, like I did. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you picked the title "Carved in Ebony"?
0: Yes, um, it actually came about pretty early because one of the first women that I started looking into was Amanda Barry Smith, and I come from a Baptist background. Uh, I'm now Presbyterian, and. I hadn't heard about Amanda Berry Smith, but a lot of my like Methodist friends are like, "Yeah, we know all about Amanda. Um, she was a, um, a Methodist preacher evangelist, and um, whenever she would get into the pulpit, people were so like." Um, um, because Amanda Berry Smith was so magnetic, people called her "God's image carved in ebony," and. I loved that phrase. I was really nervous um, to use it for the book title because I was like, I hope people don't think that I'm like making some kind of like really outrageous claims about like God and people. And, and then I, and then I kind of had to stop and and think like, why, why is that something that's making me nervous? Why is that something that's making me uncomfortable? Is this a conversation that we should have? Like would making the book um, called Nebony make that conversation easier to have? And so it ended up through a long process becoming the title.
2: I'm sure it was a lot of fun researching and learning about these women. How did you choose which women to include and do you have a favorite?
0: It was so hard to choose. I think I came up with five of them pretty easily. And then the next five were just going back and forth. One of my main litmus tests was I had to not have heard about the woman before, or had to not like researched her very deeply before. And so that kind of took people off the list like Fannie Lou Hamer and Ida B. Wells and Fannie Jackson Coppin, who are amazing and commendable, but who I had already kind of learned about before. Um, and then after that, I I kind of narrowed it down by giving a, you know, a start date and an end date. I'm really interested in um, antebellum and, like, Reconstruction-era history. So I was like, okay, well, they have to fit in that little window of, right, leading up to the Civil War and right after. Um, and then it just got really arbitrary and just, you know, I feel more connected to this woman. I... I really like this piece and I want to talk more about it. Um, There's more pictures of her and it's really cool to be able to look at these pictures. And um, so it was, it just was that kind of process. And my favorite shifted a lot throughout the process. So at first I think my favorite was probably um, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. I had never heard of her before and finding out about a black novelist who was writing around the same time as some of my favorite, like, you know, um, Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte, like in that same kind of 50 year period was really cool. And I loved her speeches. I loved everything about her. And then I fell in love with, um, Charlotte Ford and Grimke because her family was incredible and learning more about them and getting to read her journals was so exciting. So those are probably my, my top two.
1: So I was going to ask, um, and I know you had, I, I, I remember you were talking about in the book, deciding who to include and, and how to you know make your list. But how I know you listed some women towards at one point in the book that you didn't include. If you could have included one more, who would you have fit? Mm. Um,
0: I'll say two for different reasons. So the first one is Lulu Fleming. She was a Baptist uh, missionary doctor to the Congo and I would have loved to include her, but I couldn't find enough information about her to make an entire chapter. And so I had to, I had to let her go, and that was really, really hard. Um, and then the second, there's a wealth of information about Anna Julia Cooper, and she would have been an amazing addition. Um, but it came down to more people had heard about Anna Julia Cooper than the rest of them, and so I wanted to be sure to include someone who maybe more people hadn't heard about. So you talk
2: about the significance of Black women as advocates. How how can Black women continue to be advocates? And how can we support that advocacy?
0: One of the major ways uh, that I'm passionate about is Black maternal advocacy. Um, in our country, we have the highest rate of maternal mortality in the developed world. Um, and Black women have the highest rates among those rates. And I happen to live in a state that has the highest rates um, of Black maternal and Black infant mortality in the um, the quote unquote developed world. And so one of the major ways that I have um, been passionate about advocacy as a black woman is in educating other black women about their options for maternal um, care and their options for prenatal care and um, options for things that increase those risks, both for the
1: mother and the baby. Um, and thank you for that too. I, I, of course, I follow you on, on social media and I'm always very interested in you sharing the, the statistics and the research and the things that you found, um, I think it's it's really admirable to help uh, educate people about those risks. I think there's a lot of us who don't realize um, those outcomes, even in the neighborhoods around us um, or in our friends and family. So I really appreciate you, draw, you drawing attention to it. Yeah, of course. What was something that surprised you doing your research about the book, for the book?
0: Um just how much I had not learned about um, advocates and activists like Mariah Stewart and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. I knew about Sojourner Truth a little bit. Um, I think we all think that we know about Sojourner Truth, but then even like learning more about her famous speech, and I, a woman, and how it was probably, okay, so one of the, interesting things that I learned because Sojourner Truth could not be included in Carved Ebony by sheer nature of the fact that we know who Sojourner Truth is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did read this really interesting book about her by Nell Irvin Painter. And um, have you guys ever heard of her speech, Ain't I a Woman? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite speeches and it's one that like, I think all kids kind of read it in, in high school. I don't, I had my students read it and I read about the speech in Nell Irvin Painter's book and Sojourner Truth was raised, um, around Dutch, like in a Dutch community, um, and was enslaved in a Dutch community. And so that whole like Southern twang and way that Ain't Woman says that she spoke is, completely inaccurate and was probably like put together by um white newspaper reporters trying to like endear her to the people who were listening to her and be like oh listen to this speech by this like older black woman doesn't she sound so like so wise and so black and so like you would think a slave would sound um like she didn't have 13 children. The speech says that she has 13 children. Which, you know, there's there's just there's a lot of things in the speech that are more like mythological than fact. And I thought it was so interesting because this speech that that I would think of as like one of the major touchstones for um the anti-slavery movement and the abolition movement and even the feminist movement um was completely not completely made up, but just it Totally obscured who Sojourner Truth actually was, and so I think one of my major things was just letting these women tell me who they were through their own words and through their own like actual speeches and through their own actual like lived and reported experiences was was such an incredible experience for me um, as someone who you know I thought I knew. Some things. And I ended up realizing that a lot of the times when I'm looking at the stories of Black women and the stories of Black people, I'm looking at them through um, white historians' eyes and not through the eyes of people who left a record for me to be able to read for myself.
1: That's really fascinating. And what do we know then? As I have not read the book you're, you mentioned about Sojourner Truth. What is known about what she actually I mean, Did she speak and actually give a speech? But when there are parts of it that are are accurate or is it like it was just completely made up and attributed to her?
0: She gave a speech. Um, and there are two versions of the speech. So like one is shorter and one is longer, but they're both kind of similar. They both kind of have that mm-hmm. anti woman um, part to them. Um, the second one is the one that we know and quote most often. It's the most like exaggerated one. The first one is less exaggerated and probably closer to the truth.
1: Okay. It's fascinating. Thank you.
2: I have a a quote from your book I'd like to read. These women were not perfect where they imitated their savior. They imitated him well. Where they fell short, his grace was sufficient for them as for us. Why is it important to acknowledge this and how does that apply to us today?
0: As a writer who was choosing to take on the stories of Black women, I was keenly aware of this assumption that black Christians are not as quote unquote solid as their white counterparts. That was illustrated to me so much when I would say like, Oh, I'm writing a book about these black Christian women throughout history that like people didn't know. I cannot tell you how many people were like, Oh, well, like what was their theological background? Like, Oh, were they like, were they theologians? Like, were they actually, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize. Oh, I didn't know. You know, just that, the surprise that that black people could could love Jesus and, um, in a way that was like intellectual as well as passionate. And so that was the first thing I just knew going into it that that these women were going to be held under a lot of scrutiny. That's first. And then secondly, um when I kind of veered out, like I said, I'm from a Baptist background. I'm Presbyterian now. And so the vast majority of the women that I chose are um Baptist and Presbyterian, I, I am biased. I would get super excited when I would find a Presbyterian woman. I'd be like, oh yes sis, hey, um, I would get like really happy. But then there's there's people like um, Minnie Helen Burroughs, who's a Baptist in the sense that I was like a Reformed like, 1689 Baptist. She's a Baptist in what we normally think of as a Baptist. Um, and there's a Mandy Smith, who's a Methodist. And then there's even people whose lives, like not just having theological differences from me, but whose lives had... You know, parts that were maybe shameful. Like Sarah J. Stanley got dismissed for for a time from her job posting, and we're like, we don't really know why. It may have had to do with some unsavory things that she did. I don't know. We're not sure. Um, and so, kind of heading heading off the discounting by saying these are people whose lives we can learn from. These are not people who were perfect. Um, I thought was really important for them. And then also for me as somebody who's writing about their lives. And even as I'm talking right now, there are people who can look at my theological leanings. And um, I'm sure at the end of my life, look at things from my life. And I would hope that um, the deeds that I did for Christ are the ones that are going to shine the brightest and that they can look at the other parts or even just the parts they don't agree with and say, okay, well, (laughs) nobody's perfect, um, but God still worked through her.
1: You know, I think that's really important. And it's one of the things that you know, Colleen and I have been focusing on uh, in the last year or so with, with our podcast is how we can learn from others, even if we may disagree. Even if we disagree on on some significant areas, what can we learn from each other? How can we have conversations with each other and um, it, it, with respect and, and to uh, just appreciate other people and their contributions? So that's it, another reason. Uh, you know, we wanted to have you on about this book is because it's it's learning about something that many of us will not be familiar with. But there is a lot there, like you mentioned, that we can learn from these women. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly just in repeating their stories so that others will know about them, too. That, that's that's an important part of us uh, remembering the history of, of Christians who've gone before us. Um, another quote from your book that I liked: you wrote, What if we put God's glory at the center of our concern for the telling of our story? and left America's glory to fend for herself. And can you expand a little bit about what you're getting at there, but then also how that would look practically for us?
0: When I chose to sat down, sit down and write on Carbon Avenue, realizing how much I was gonna be talking about um, the Civil War, how much I was gonna be talking about Reconstruction and, and American history and white supremacy, I immediately, so let me start over. From my background, I was homeschooled raised in a very conservative, um, I always say fundamentalist adjacent. Like we weren't wearing the, you know, we, we didn't look like Mennonites, right? But we still like I didn't I never I didn't date till I was in my twenties and we didn't call it dating. We called it courtship. And you know, I didn't go off to college because I was staying home to repair to be a wife and mother. And like it, you know, there was just some very conservative leanings there. And one of the major things that I was taught about history is that there are these people who want to tell you that America is not a Christian nation, and they want to kind of destroy the legacy of Christianity in this country. And we cannot let them because as soon as we give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And I just grew up thinking that and hearing that. And so when I started um, studying history in earnest as an adult, I had this visceral reaction of like, oh, oh no! I just found out something that's like not great (laughs) about um, our country, or oh no, I found out something that's not amazing about this theologian that I grew up listening to my entire life, and oh gosh, like can 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 my faith stand up to this? I realized how closely my faith was tied to America looking a certain way and to certain heroes of the past looking a certain way. And I realized just how much I was counting on um, just that vision to like gird up my faith. And when you take take that away, um, what you're left with is counting on Jesus and counting on him to be the person who's active in history and who's bringing things about to accomplish his will. And it makes America less of a hero, yes, but I think it makes Jesus more of a hero because it just shows how living and active he is um, in all kinds of countries and all kinds of nations and in all kinds of people. It kind of takes America out of the spotlight. And I
1: found that really scary at first, um, but it ended up being really freeing too. I appreciate you taking that approach, um, and I was thinking about how, uh, in the scripture, you know, one of the things that that we point to is as the pointing to the um, the truthfulness of, of of the history in scripture is that, you know, people like Moses and David and and Peter and Paul are portrayed, you know, warts and all, and not just you know as these these great heroes who never did anything wrong, but because the message is not about them but about God and and. Uh, Jesus and the work uh, of salvation and, and how he is perfect and we are not. And uh, if it's, if it's not saying that all history is like the Bible, but that in, in pointing out the failures that we have in history, it doesn't diminish our history, but it does give us a better and a more full picture of, of the truth and of, of how we have lived. And if we repeat, if we appreciate that about scripture, we should appreciate it about our own history mm-hmm. in, a, in the U S. One of the things
2: I've kind of learned from some women in our Facebook group that live in other countries is just how a lot of American Christians have a very um, American way of looking at things. We've learned that a lot with some of the manhood, womanhood uh, debates and just trying to look out outside of ourselves a little bit. What what are some lessons we can learn from these women that you talk about?
0: Oh, so many different lessons. I think from um, one of my favorites is Sarah Mapps Douglas, who was a Quaker woman, and um, she was very, very committed to the Quaker church, but also very critical of the Quaker church um, because she loved it, because she wanted better for it. And so when when Quaker churches in her area were having segregated worship services, she called them out, um, not because she decided that she didn't like them, um, but because she wanted better for them. And I love that. I love that she stayed committed. Um, I love that she opened her mouth and, and spoke. Um, another one is Nanny Helen Burroughs. She's one that almost didn't make it into the book because at first I was really excited about her. And then I would read a quote from her that I would find like slightly offensive. And I'd be like, okay, Nanny, that's, you're, you're kind of being a little bit too harsh. I don't love that. But then I'd read another quote and I'd be like, yeah, she's being just harsh enough. That's amazing. Um, and so I, Realized that like my biases were definitely impacting how how I was reading her and it just made me read more and more and more. And what I ended up loving about Nanny Helen Bros is that she was just incisive. It did not matter who she was talking to, it did not matter what context she was in, she did not hold back at any point ever. Um, and she also put her resources and her time and her energy into um building up and helping out the communities that she was critiquing which is amazing um and i think the last person i'll say is um charlotte ford and grimke she came from a legacy of these abolitionist aunts and poets and teachers and activists and um always kind of grew up thinking that she wasn't that remarkable, I think, in comparison to them. Um, That's just me kind of reading into her journals. But she would always be like, oh, I don't really do that much. Like, yeah, I guess I speak like French and Latin. And I read 500 books this year, but I'm just not that amazing (laughs) like my family. (laughs) Um, And just kind of seeing her life through my eyes, I'm like, you're incredible. Like you went down south and you taught you know the formerly enslaved, and then you came back up north, and you taught in this prestigious school, and then you married this cool Presbyterian pastor, and you were like totally active and amazing. And you know, from my perspective, she was doing all these things, and from her perspective, she was never doing enough. Um, <clears throat> and just just seeing that, and maybe thinking like, "Man, is that is that me? Like, am I like that?" Um, th- that happened a lot.
1: That's really very interesting, and, and I know I. I very much identify it's always fun in, in learning about you and hearing from you and um, you know, following you and in, in, in what you're doing with your family as you share it publicly. And there are a lot of overlaps um, between my, my history and yours, as far as you know, a pastor's daughter grew up Southern Baptist. I'm Presbyterian. Now I'm not married to a pastor, but um, uh, involved in a lot of the same world here in this area of, of Texas. and. Um, while we certainly have very different backgrounds as well, every time in history and history and homeschooling, it's always just fun to talk to you and and hear about your background and that, that piece as well about, you know, judging yourself harshly because you haven't done enough. Mm -hmm. It's a constant refrain in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, always fascinating when I hear other people who I think so highly of saying the same thing. I'm like, wow, but you've done so many things. are there some other resources that you would recommend for those of us who might want to do a deeper dive into the subject? I just love, um, I'm, I'm always on Google just looking
0: up things but my favorite place to look for articles to get started is the negro history bulletin um so back in the uh, i want to say 1920s carter g woodson um started the negro history bulletin for teachers and it was a a monthly um magazine that went out and it had all kinds of articles of black history articles about black history articles about um, specific people like profiles of what was going on um And it's still going on now, actually, under a different name. Um, But all of the back issues of the Negro History Bulletin are available on JSTOR and I think Mm -hmm. on Google Books. And so I look, a lot of these women and a lot of the men that I've also learned about have little profiles just in the Negro History Bulletin that you can just read. And it's a great place to just get started and to learn more about people that, you know, because I find a lot of people, um, a lot of Black history was being done and being done well um, in the twenties through like the sixties, seventies. Uh, and then kind of these biographical profiles fell out of favor with the academy in in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. And so a lot of the work is just reclaiming work that has already been done in the past. And the Negro history bulletin did a lot of of things in the past. Um, there's another historian, her name is Layla Amos Pendleton. Um, she wrote a history book in the thirties that has a lot of cool profiles in it. Um, and yeah, I've just been collecting a lot of things like that. I have a website called um, Carved in Ebony. Um, and I kind of have a lot of free resources up there, things that i found and people that i found. And I try to just put a lot of primary resources up um, so that people can go and see them
1: and kind of jumpstart their own research. Thank you for that. And ask if you could send us the links of places that you would suggest so we can add it to the show notes. Um, for sure. And two questions real quick to kind of follow up on those where are some other places we can find you and your work and the other is what are you working on now so
0: i'm on instagram i i am one of those people who can only do one form of social media at a time i was trying to do instagram and twitter and um it's i can't I, my emotional my emotional energy just has to be spent in one place so i do a lot of um, teaching and Q and A's and like posting a lot of cool links on Instagram. And right now, um, so I actually have a young readers version of Carved and Ebony out um, as of August 2nd, and it's for nine to 14 year olds. And so it's the 10 ladies from Carved and Ebony, but they're in chronological order. And I wrote it to be a supplemental um, resource for people who are teaching um, civil war. So they can, teach um, that part in history and learn about these 10 women and kind of get some cool Civil War history and additional resources while they're learning. I I will definitely
2: um, link everything that you mentioned in the episode notes for our listeners. Uh, Are you working on any other books coming up if you can talk about it or if you want to?
0: Yeah, I am. I have a, um, book about shame coming out in, um, February with B and H it's called never cast out, um, how the gospel puts an end to the story of shame. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also working on, I signed a two book deal with Baker, um, a couple months ago, and I'm working on the first book, which is about um, how black abolitionists use the image of God to argue, um, against slavery.
2: Well, thank you so much, Jasmine. Um, highly recommend our listeners go and pick up the book which i'll link it in the episode notes along with the other resources that jasmine has mentioned i know so many of our listeners love history so thank you so much jasmine
0: of course thank you for having me